listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. So, remember where we're at. Uh, the first thing you need to remember is this is an actual letter, right? Paul wrote a letter to a church. Paul the Apostle, uh, you read about him in Acts, um, who was traveling around ministering. He had started and planted churches all over the Roman world, and he communicated with those churches via written letters. Colossians is one of those written letters. It's unique in that Paul did not start this church. We're going to get into that a little bit today. He didn't plant the Colossian church, and evidence seems to suggest that at this point, he'd never actually even been to the city, much less spoken to these people. But he hears from their pastor, this guy named Epaphras, and he um, writes this letter to the Colossians on behalf of Epaphras to speak into false teaching that the church is struggling with. That for whatever reason, the elders in Epaphras can't seem to deal with. So they pull out the big guns. Epaphras leaves Colossae. He goes, he finds Paul in prison, tells him the situation, and gets Paul to write this letter on his behalf to speak the truth to this church. Now, we talked last week about how Paul is speaking about the sufficiency of Jesus for any and every aspect of the curse, right? And he's speaking this directly over and above a synchronistic heresy that the Colossian church is believing. Now, we don't know the specific philosophy, or if it was a specific philosophy or religion or heresy that was engaging this church, but what we do know is that they were adding different practices and beliefs into the gospel. They said, yes, we have Jesus, we have the gospel, but we also want to take some of these Jewish and pagan practices and intermix them together to, to make something new. We want gospel plus something else. And so Paul is speaking the excellencies and sufficiencies of uh, the person and work of Jesus over this synchronistic heresy, right? Now, what's important for us to note here, because we're going to see this even in the introduction here, is that Paul's method of addressing the heresy in this church is pretty unique to what we have surviving of Paul's writings. If you go and you read Galatians or you read Corinthians and you see Paul addressing false teaching in the church or the pastorals, you know, First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul doesn't mince words. He blasts heresy. He, he blasts people who give false teaching to the church. And Corinthians and Galatians, I mean, they're, they're really intense letters. But Colossians is different. Paul doesn't know these people. <laughs> he doesn't have existing relationship with them. And so he engages the teaching much more gently and much more pastorally. And he builds a larger thread over the course of this book of essentially seeking to unite the church in Colossae to the universal church. Paul's trying to establish common ground in relationship with the church so he can speak a hard word to them with regard to their false teaching. And the way he does this starts even in the introduction. I, I love this piece. By the way, the introductions to these letters were pretty, pretty formalized in that culture. Um, Paul, the way he writes his letters, the way he's, you know, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, these, these kind of structures and forms were very normative to letters in that day. Paul flavored it to his own personality and his own position as an apostle and things like that. But, but these things are pretty normal, except in Colossians. 
Colossians, we get easily Paul's longest introduction to a letter. He actually extends the introduction out if you follow the flow of the text. It pretty much is introduction until most, pretty much the end of the chapter. He, he keeps going and building this thought process, uh, which you're like, by the time he finishes introducing the letter, there's pretty much not much letter left. But uh, that, that's how Paul chooses to do it. And, and so, so look at this. He says, just opening our text, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, that's an easy text to skip over, mostly because Paul basically says that or something like that in every letter he writes. He's affirming, hey, I pray for your church, and man, I'm so grateful to God your church exists. That's a beautiful truth, and, but it's, it's one that we see throughout Paul's letters. The unique thing here is to remember, he has no idea who these people are. He's never met them. He's never been here. He didn't start this church. He doesn't have years of existing relationship. When he writes those same words to the church at Ephesus or the church at Corinth, he's thinking of faces and names and stories and years of relationship and hurt and trial and working through the work of the gospel together. When he speaks this to the Colossian church, it's just some church that he's never been to. And I want you to recognize that because a, it's, it's brilliant. It's part of Paul's strategy. He's connecting himself relationally to this church, and he's helping this church see their larger identity in, in the life of the church and of the gospel. But, but really what's happening here is Paul's expressing compassion to these people, right? There's a lot of love in this. Paul sees the Colossians' membership in the universal church. And even though he didn't start it, and even though he didn't go there and set up there and vet their elders and install them, and even though he hasn't read their statement of faith or been on their website, he knows that they're a church proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And he's heard about them through this man in Epaphras. And he legitimately thanks God for their existence. I mean, reread that. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Not going, hey guys, I heard things are bad. I've been praying for you. No, he says, man, I thank God every time I pray for you. I'm just, I'm just grateful to him that the gospel is being proclaimed in Colossae. That's beautiful. Right off the bat, we need to sit with that a little bit, right? We're, we're going to talk about this a little more in this text. But one of the things that Colossians hits you over the head with really quickly is that there is a kingdom that God is moving forward in this world. And it's bigger than what you think it is. And he jumps into that right out of, right out of the gate. Now, I love where he goes with this because even though there's no established relationship and even he's still praying for them, he still has gratitude for them. And then look what he calls out in this church immediately. Let me, let me reread this part. This is kind of in verse 4. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Those are three phrases, right? We've heard of your faith in Christ, your love for the saints, fueled by the hope you have in heaven. Now, I don't know if that, like, some of your, like, Sunday school minds, like, sparks there, but, but Paul 
is connecting his understanding of this church to one of his larger doctrines of the New Testament church. You think back to, to, to Paul's explanation of the characteristics of the church in 1 Corinthians 13 when he goes on this, this beautiful explanation of spiritual gifts, right? At the end of it, he goes, listen, spiritual gifts are awesome, but ultimately they don't last and they don't super matter. What really defines the church is not spiritual gifts, it's faith and hope and love, right? You remember that? So here, Paul connects this church to that larger doctrine. I see even in the testimonies I've heard of you, of your faith in Christ and your love for each other and your hope for eternity, Colossae, you are a part of the same church I'm a part of. I see that identity in you. So again, there is this brilliance here because he doesn't know these people and he's building a bridge of relationship and connection with them. But, but I don't want you to see this as like Paul scheming. Paul is speaking genuinely here. He's heard this testimony and he goes, I don't have to step foot in your church. I, I hear, like even just hearing about you, I, I know the spirit of God is there. I know the kingdom is there. I know your church is a church in the same sense that I mean that word. And there's something beautiful about that. When we get to verse 6, I love this part. This is one of my favorite verses in the book, and I think it has a lot of the meat on the bone for us today. Read this with me. He says, which, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Is it, oh, sorry. I didn't read the rest of it. Bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. I, I, I love this part of the text, right? He says, listen, I see your membership in the universal church. I testify to the fact that you guys are in Christ because I know that the same gospel that's changing the world has changed you guys. You heard the gospel in truth, and that gospel is effective. Now, guys, I, I, I want you to hear this. Like, this piece is really important. It's important to the larger structure of the book, but it's important to what we're talking about today. Paul calls out this church as brothers and sisters and then immediately says that their, their connection, their unity, comes from the truth of the gospel. You see, it's really easy when you start talking about the universal church, the movement of the kingdom, to, to trick yourself into thinking what we're talking about is just loose ecumenicalism, ecumenicalism, Right? And some of you are like, I would not fall into that trap because I don't know what that word means. Um, you can read about this idea. I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk and discussion in our world today about what it means for the church to be unified. And if you look at a lot of that's what the word ecumenicalism means. If you look in most of those discussions, usually what it comes down to is we just need to forget about doctrinal fidelity so that we can come together around social impact issues, Right? You dig into some of the history of like the World Council of Churches and things like that. Some of that stuff's really beautiful, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but, but what practically happens oftentimes when we have discussions about coming together is we just say, listen, doctrine doesn't actually matter. What matters is us coming together. And those things are set aside. Paul doesn't leave room for that here, right? He says, listen, 
that I know the gospel's bearing fruit in you the same way it does in the whole world. I know that you're a part of the universal church because you heard the true gospel. And he zones in on that. There is a true gospel. And it is sufficient, and it is powerful, and it is moving forward in the whole world, and it is bearing fruit on everything it touches, but it is a true gospel. The truth. He comes back to that idea multiple times in this text. I mean, wow. You catch how, how big this thing Paul's talking about is. Paul overall is reminding this small little church in a city of waning national importance that they're part of an amazingly huge gospel work that is advancing throughout the whole world, right? But it is a specific gospel work. It's not just vague, easy believism. He's talking about something specific. And then he moves on and he talks about this guy, Epaphras, right? We, we learn in verse 7, and Epaphras was the guy who helped found this church. Paul speaks really highly of him. He calls him a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. That, that by the way, like we're not going to dig into this, but there's a lot of weight behind that specific phrase he uses of this faithful minister. Paul is, Paul is putting a lot of his own authority and a lot of credit to the teaching the person of Epaphras when he says this. And then he goes on to say, he's the one who who gave testimony of your church to me. He made known to me your love in the Spirit. Right? And that's the end of our text. And we're going to talk about Epaphras for a minute because he's, he's, really, he's really kind of important to this. But, 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 but I want you to see kind of the overarching movement of the text here, right? Paul is opening this letter, and he opens it by saying, listen, I am grateful to God that you exist church in Colossae. I've been praying for you because I know, I can sense the Spirit of God in you, that you are a part of the same movement of God that I'm a part of. And you guys know that movement is a big movement. It's going throughout the whole world. The true gospel that you heard, the true gospel that I heard, anything that thing touches, it can't be the same afterward. That gospel changes the world. And I know that's what you experienced because you have this amazing pastor named Epaphras, and he came and told me about it. He told me about your faithfulness. He told me about the gospel moving forward in your church and moving forward amongst you. Right? So, what do we actually do with this text? That's, that's basically it, right? Paul's saying, you're great. I see the Spirit in you. You're a part of the same movement I'm part of. I know it because I heard testimony of it through your pastor. Your pastor's awesome. You should probably treat him a little better. Uh, then we move on. That part's inferred, by the way. He didn't say that, but you can tell. You can tell Epaphras is like, hey, put something in there about my faithfulness. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's not how that went down. Um, but I do, I do want to get us to this idea of, of Paul pushing to talk about this church's involvement in the larger church. And to get there, I want to talk about Epaphras for a second. So Epaphras is, is actually a pretty important character, even though most of us have never heard of him. He's kind of like, um, he's kind of like a biblical Boba Fett. And what, what I don't mean by that is that he's a totally unimportant character that didn't really do anything interesting, but everyone makes a huge deal out of him. Uh, there are like four Star Wars fans in the room who were like, hey now, that was too painful. Uh, what I mean by it is, 
You haven't really heard of him. He made it into the Bible, right? That's probably pretty important. And yet most of us don't know anything about this dude. But what's amazing is this guy's quiet, faithful ministry had a massive gospel impact. Had a massive gospel impact. See, what we, what we know about Epaphras is not much, which speaks to some of the stuff we know about him. He's not a big deal. He's not a Paul. He's not like one of the apostles. He's not famous. He's not shown throughout all these stories of miracles and crazy working. What we know about him is that he heard the gospel and he came home to his city that he loved, surrounded by his neighbors, and he saw the death and the lostness around him. And he couldn't help but to share the gospel because of the hope stored up for him in heaven. Right? That same thing Paul calls out, Epaphras is a part of this church. Because of the hope laid up for him in heaven, he couldn't help but share the gospel. And God moved in that, and the Spirit spoke through that. And God drew dead hearts to life and gave the gift of faith. And God birthed a church in the city of Colossae where one didn't exist before because he had done a work in the the life of a guy named Epaphras. That's pretty awesome. And I love that that is given to us at the same breath as Paul talking about this massive universal movement of the church, right? I think what's so powerful about that piece is that what we realize is that the gospel is like way bigger than Epaphras, right? The gospel is this universal worldwide movement, and yet we're also reminded that the gospel is never smaller than Epaphras, right? It is this universal, worldwide movement. And yet, it also moves forward through the faithful, quiet ministry of nobodies that you've never heard of. What an amazing, amazing truth. That that's how our God moves his kingdom forward. Yes, there are Pauls, right? There are Peters. But there's also a whole lot of Epaphrases. Have you guys, um, some of you, if you've been in church a long time. You may have uh, heard this example before, uh, and so I apologize if you have, but has anyone here heard of, heard of Edwin Campbell? Don't put the slide up yet, Drew. Put it up at the end. I have a slide for this. I saw him looking at the computer. <laughs> Edwin Campbell's a guy uh, that unless you've heard this sermon illustration before, you've never heard of him. Uh, this is a dude who taught uh, youth Sunday school in an inner-city context in the 1800s. And he had a class of boys, high school-age boys, that he was teaching Sunday school to. And because of the, the reality of how some of like the YMCA-type organizations were working in the city at that point, a lot of young men had come to the city for work and had to come to Sunday school as part of their work or their housing agreement. And so this guy, Edwin Campbell, is teaching this high school boys Sunday school class uh, that's full of a lot of kids, and a good chunk of them have zero interest in faith or the gospel or anything. They just have to be there because it's literally part of their housing or their work agreement. And so this troubles him. He's sitting here preaching the gospel, faithfully trying to disciple these young men, knowing that a ton of them are just totally closed off. And so he sits back and he goes, I just, 
I just don't think in a classroom setting with 30 or 40 of them there that I'm going to be able to help these fringe kids. And so he sets up a system where he begins to go and visit these fringe kids in his Sunday school class one by one. He goes, he finds them at work, he takes them out on their lunch break, he meets them at their house, and he starts visiting through these groups of kids. Now, one kid in particular, a 17-year-old boy, was working at a shoe store, uh, totally closed off to the things of the gospel, but he likes this guy, Edwin. And so Edwin says, hey man, I want to come buy you lunch on your lunch break. I want to spend some time with you. And he goes, yeah, absolutely. And so he goes and he meets this kid at the shoe store and he shares the gospel with him and really digs into the kid's story and his life, presents the truth of Christ. And the kid ends up accepting Christ in the basement of the shoe store where he works. It's awesome. And he plugs in and he grows in his faith. Uh, His name is Dwight Moody. Which, in and of itself, you're like, dang, Moody, okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, If you don't know, Moody grew up to be one of the most influential American theologians basically ever, shared the gospel with thousands and thousands of people over the course of his life and ministry. One of those guys was uh, a young man named F.B. Meyer, who heard Moody speak at a tent revival, um, and he ended up uh, having his heart raptured by Christ, and he gives his life to Jesus, and F.B. Meyer as he grows up, basically says, man, I can't help but share this same gospel. This changed my life. I think it'll change other people's life. And so he shares the gospel with uh, basically everyone he comes in contact to. He's kind of known for that. And a man named Wilbur Chapman hears the gospel from him. And that dude uh, is given the gift of faith, and his heart is raptured. And he just says, man, I need to proclaim this gospel everywhere I can. And so he starts going into city parks Uh, especially in the summer when there's like carnivals going on and starts preaching in the open air under tents um, out in public spaces and spends his life preaching that gospel. And one day while Chapman is preaching the gospel, uh, a young man named Billy Sunday heard the gospel from him and gives his life to Christ. And if you don't know who Billy Sunday is, he's one of the most famous revivalists. And so he begins, he gives his life over to the Lord, and he begins sharing the gospel publicly, uh, has a massively successful radio ministry when the radio blows up, and he travels the country preaching the gospel in all sorts of contexts. Um, And he ends up at a little tent meeting preaching the gospel to a guy, this one's the best name, by the way, preaches the uh, the gospel to a guy named Mordecai Ham, which is just amazing in and of itself. Uh, And Mordecai hears the gospel and his heart is raptured and he gives his life to Jesus and finds salvation and says, man, I want to spend my life preaching this gospel. And so he gets a van and travels around the country preaching in the open air on street corners and in city parks everywhere he can. And one day while he's traveling around preaching, a young man named Billy Graham hears the gospel and comes and receives Christ. And at this point you're like, yeah, and the chain goes on right? There are people like in this room today whose lives were affected by the ministry of Billy Graham, right? It's crazy. And so we can sit and we can look at something like that, and and you have to on some level just go, man, the gospel is powerful. That true gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. That's amazing to see how God uses faithfulness and obedience to mission, right? And yet, when you sit and you think about the influence of guys like Billy Graham, right, sharing the gospel around the world, and you, and you rewind back five generations in the faith, 
to an inner city youth Sunday school teacher who felt burdened that he had fringe kids who didn't care about his Sunday school lesson. And so he decides to go start buying them lunch. Who could possibly imagine, right, the exponential impact of that little expression of gospel faithfulness? If we heard about that, right? If we were at our members meeting and we got prayer requests and one of the prayer requests that came from one of the inner city churches we support was, hey, we have a guy who's discipling young men and he just felt really convicted by the Lord to go start meeting some of those guys at work and buying them lunch on their lunch break to share life with them. We'd be like, rock and roll. Good on him. And we'd pray over it and we'd probably move past it because that sounds like just really normal, quiet, not exciting local church ministry. And yet, look what God can do with those things. See, here's the crazy thing, right? When you think about Epaphras' and Paul's and Campbell's and Graham's, they seem so different when you stare at them. When you, when you look at the impact of guys like Paul and guys like Graham and guys like Moody, and then you look at the impact of guys like Epaphras and guys like Campbell, it just seems like they're miles apart. And yet, we probably wouldn't have many Epaphrases or Campbells if it weren't for the ministries of Paul's and Graham's. But we also wouldn't have many Paul's or Graham's if it weren't for the ministries of the Epaphrases and the Campbells. Because we know when it comes down to it, it's one work. It's one work that God is doing. One kingdom that he is moving forward. He's the one who's actually giving the gift of faith and empowering the preaching of his word and the proclamation of his excellencies. He's the one who's showing up and opening dead eyes to see the death in their hearts and giving them the faith to accept him. He's the one doing the work. And he does the work through famous Pauls and famous Grahams and totally unheard of Campbells and Epaphrases. I say totally unheard of. Epaphras made it in the Bible. you know. But you get what I'm saying. Stories that aren't exciting, that will never get told except in heaven. Where the only attaboy the person gets for their faithful ministry is from Jesus himself. This is the work of the kingdom. And beloved, this is the movement we're a part of. This is the thing that we have been called into. Listen, every church has theological distinctiveness, right? Or it should. And we stand on that stuff. We believe in that stuff. We have a statement of faith that we've prayed over and researched and, and poured over, and we care about it. We do. And that stuff's important. But we don't care about that to the exclusion of the universal work that God is doing. Does that make sense? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a fine line we have to walk there, right? Because there is such a thing as apostasy. 
And there is such a thing as wrong doctrine. Paul's going to get into that a ton in this letter. But he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with everything wrong with the Colossian church. He doesn't start with the danger of their heresy or the way they are excluding themselves from the overarching work God is doing. He starts by reminding them how amazingly grand and huge and sufficient the work that God is doing is. He starts by reminding them of their membership in that church and that movement. I love that. I love that. And he gets into, he he lays this groundwork for us. You heard the true gospel. True gospel. There is a true gospel and a false gospel. You heard that. You were invited into that. Don't lose that. Right? And he gives us this piece, the faith, hope, and love, this, this kind of universal identifier that we see in Pauline theology for what is the church. And he, he spells it out in a way in Colossians that's a little unique to the way Paul normally talks about faith, hope, and love. And so I want to point this out to us because I, I love this piece and I think it's actually really important for us today. So, so Paul says, right, let me just reread it. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He gives this interesting piece that he doesn't, he doesn't normally communicate it this way where he says, listen, we see your faith in Christ. We see your love for the saints and we know that it's fueled by your hope of eternity. Because I think, I think we today probably need to zone in on that for just a couple minutes. This true gospel that the New Testament teaches that Paul was an apostle of and that we are seeking to faithfully steward and proclaim today, this true gospel that is moving in power throughout the whole world, it is fueled by hope. Fueled by hope. It's not fueled by prideful identity in a nuanced, exactly right doctrine. And we need to remember that. Because in our little faith tradition, it's really easy for us to put our stance, to plant our flag in the nuance of our right doctrine. It is. And I'm sorry if that like, is hurtful for you. It hurts for me to think about that. Because I do want to have right doctrine. I do want to be aligned with the movement of the Spirit. I, like, that stuff's good and it's important, but that is not the fuel of our gospel. Being right in just the right way and being aligned with just the right theologians. The fuel of our gospel is the hope of the kingdom. It's the promise that what is today will not be forever. It's the promise that Jesus will do what he said he will do, that he's actually trustworthy, that when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will return for you, that he actually meant it and he actually has the ability to be true to his word, that he actually has the power and the authority to completely destroy every effect of the curse and give us eternal, perfect, fulfilled life with him. That is the gospel. Our hope. Our hope in eternity. 
I said this with a group of guys. We, we have a, a guys' discipleship group that meets a couple times a month, and we talked about this this week. We talked about this idea that, that in, in, in American evangelicism, we, we slip into this weird, like, emotional prosperity gospel. Where, where we think that the, the promise of the gospel is that our life right now will be joyful and fulfilling and amazing. That if I just give myself over to Christ, then my marriage will be healthy and he'll give me a wonderful relationship and great kids and, and a perfect home life. And, you know, we'll, like, we'll struggle with stuff and, and, you know, the culture will push back on us, but there'll be so much just fulfillment and hope of self that, like, we'll be able to push through it. Beloved, that's not the gospel. If for this world alone we hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied. The hope of the gospel is eternity. The hope of the gospel is that the woes and pains and wrongs and brokenness of this world will be eternally crushed under the foot of the triumphant Christ who rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and is returning to take us with him. This is the hope of our gospel. And the message that goes with that, beloved, is cross now and crown later. Now, there's a whole theology of suffering in there that we don't have time to talk about today. But I want you to hear this piece. Crown later is the promise of our gospel. It's the hope that Christ has said, I have, I have defeated death. Trust me. I'll come back for you. It's not a coincidence that Jesus connected his death and resurrection and eventual return to the, to the Jewish marriage rites and their understanding of, of engagement. Because the, the bridegroom would promise the bride, I will return when my home is ready for you. And the bride had to wait patiently and expectantly. This is the analogy Christ made for us. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, I would tell you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is the promise of Jesus. Eternity with him. And does the gospel leak into life right now? Yes, absolutely. Does our firm identity and the sufficiency and excellently and completed work of Christ, does that change how we engage our spouse and our coworkers and our family and our life here today? Yes, absolutely. We will dig into that. That is a big chunk of this book, by the way, is how the gospel affects the way you engage the world right here and right now. The hope of the gospel is not a license to unplug yourself from this dead and dying world. No, the hope of the gospel is a challenge for you to throw yourself headlong into this dead and dying world and to give everything that the gospel might go forward because you know that your eternity is secure. There's a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of hurt, some that we've brought on ourselves and some that this cursed and broken world has put on us that I have to be honest with you, church. It's not going away before Jesus comes back and gets you. Some of the stuff that's been done to us and some of the stuff we deal with mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, it just ain't going away before heaven. It just isn't. 
You can pray for that. You should pray for that. You should seek that. Proclaim the truth of the gospel. Seek to die unto yourself. Seek to repent. Allow the Spirit to grow and change and sanctify you. Yes, amen. All of those things. But the reality is, we do not hope in this world. We hope in eternity. And that hope fuels a faith in Christ Jesus and a love for the saints. It fuels it in such a way that if if we have experienced this true gospel, it should challenge our silo mentality to church. When we drive through our community and remember the fact that West County is the most churched part of St. Louis, and there are churches all around us, a lot of them that we wouldn't agree with doctrinally, that if we sat down, us and them, and we put our statements of faith on a table, we would say, we really passionately think you're wrong about this, this, and this, and we actually have biblical reasons for that. And that stuff's good. It's good. It is. But at the same time, God's kingdom is bigger than Red Tree Church. And it's bigger than Reformed Baptistic theology. And there's a lot of stuff that we're really confident about that we're going to go meet Jesus face to face and go, oh, shoot. (laughs) And he's going to smile and hug us and say, well done. You did the best you could. You're kind of dumb, though. And then he's probably going to say something really similar to our Methodist friends and our Lutheran friends and our Catholic friends and our Greek Orthodox friends. I don't have a Greek Orthodox friend. Get one. Because they're really weird. (laughs) Just, if you haven't been to a Greek Orthodox baptism service, make sure that's on your bucket list. That's all I'm saying. They baptize babies by immersion. It's amazing. YouTube it. Anyway, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, guys listen I I need you to hear this nothing in me right now is telling you to sacrifice doctrinal fidelity it's really important there is a true gospel and there is a false gospel and there are people who call themselves Christians and churches that call themselves churches that are nothing of the sort they preach heresy They've added so many things to Christ and subtracted so many things from the message that they are not a church and their hope is not in eternity. And we must be weary of that. That's why Paul wrote this letter. He saw a church going down that road and he cautioned them away from doctrinal infidelity, back to the one true gospel and the supremacy of Christ. But we must remember that as we seek to be faithful to the true gospel and to root ourselves as firmly as we can in the clear, amazing teaching of Scripture about the sufficiencies and excellency of Jesus, that we are human and we're doing our best. And God is doing amazing things outside of these walls. We need to be able to celebrate that. We need to be able to pray for that. Guys, do you realize that the account of the Colossian church that Epaphras gave to Paul included their heresy. And Paul still writes and says, man, I thank God for you, Colossian church. 
I thank God that the gospel is being proclaimed in Colossae. That is amazing. Man, the gospel is so big. It's going through the whole world and bearing fruit. You guys don't even know. Beloved, we're part of the work that God is doing, the kingdom that God is moving forward. We've been invited into that work. We should celebrate that work. So listen, as you drive through West County and you remember that there's churches everywhere and a lot of them are wrong about some doctrines that we're passionate about, and I'll say it that way because I think that's true, you can still pray blessing over those churches. We can still celebrate God moving his kingdom forward in context that we ourselves would not be a part of because of conviction. Wow. I don't know if you came to our members meeting last night, but we met in another church's building. A church that let us use their building for our members meeting with less than an hour's notice. Because we messed some stuff up. And we called a random pastor and said, hey dude, I'm really sorry, can we use your building in like 50 minutes? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if you printed out those two doctrinal statements and laid them next to each other, there'd be a couple things we'd argue over. And yet that church sees what God is doing at Red Tree and can celebrate and affirm the movement of the Spirit. And we can see what God is doing at West County Bible Church and celebrate and affirm the movement of the Spirit. And we can be on the same team. And we can be a part of the working of God's kingdom to seek and save the lost. What a gift. See, ultimately... Ultimately, this comes down to what you actually treasure. Do you treasure this world? And do you treasure the things this world gives? Or do you treasure eternity? Do you treasure the identity that comes from your tribal identity as a conservative certain kind of Christian? Do you, uh, do you treasure the identity that comes from a happy, healthy, fulfilling marriage or a certain kind of parenting or a certain career? Or do you treasure eternity? Because if you treasure eternity, if your hope is in eternity, it gives you a bigger perspective to engage your family, to engage the church, to engage the work of the mission. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to end out our time with a word from Jesus. He says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beloved, I pray that our hearts and my heart would be in eternity with our Jesus. I'm going to give some space for us to respond to Christ in prayer. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like for you to find a way for you to be with Jesus for a couple minutes. Uh, if you can do that sitting in your chair, if you need to get up and find some space to get on your knees, if you need to speak to one of our pastors, if you need another human being to pray over you, I'd invite you to do that. We have two prayer counselors today, Deanne and Mike, if you guys want to stand up so people can see you. They'll be around the room. Our pastors are around the room. 
You can invite someone to come pray over you. But I want you to find some space for you to be with Jesus. And I want you to talk about this. I want you to be honest with him about the treasure of your heart. Where do you store your heart? Comfort, success, in the advancement of your career, in the health of your family, in the fidelity of your doctrine, in literally anything that exists in the next hundred years. How much of your heart is sitting in eternity? Because guys, that, that fuels the kind of humble, quiet, faithful, Epaphras, Campbell ministry that goes and shares the gospel with a a hard-hearted kid on his lunch break. Because you just know, like, that's, that's faithfulness in this moment. Doesn't get you credit. Doesn't advance your cause. Doesn't advance your standing. Just an eternal investment. Be honest with God about that. Pick through that. Ask him to give you clear eyes to see where you are storing your heart. Do that. Take a few minutes to be in that, and then I'll, I'll close our time of prayer, and we'll, we'll take communion while, while we listen to some gospel music. Jesus, speak to us this morning. Shine a spotlight on the ways that our hearts are trapped in the here and the now in this world. On the treasures that we store up that we know will rot. God, give us eyes to see your eternal work. Spirit, speak to us in this moment. Beloved, do what you needed to do with Meet with Jesus for a few minutes. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.